If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn together with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. And if you do need a Bible this morning, please lift your hand up. We'd be happy to bring one over to you to follow along in God's Word with us. Just hold your hand up and the guys are coming up the aisle. They'd be happy to give you a Bible. On Sunday mornings, we've been going through Luke's Gospel together. And this morning, we're going to finish up the 14th chapter. We left off last time there at the end of verse 24 and this morning we'll pick up in verse 25 and run our way down through the remainder of the chapter together and if you're turned to Luke 14 would you stand together with me as we do out of reverence for the word of God as I read our text for Bible study Luke 14 beginning in verse 25 says now great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him? saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And Father, we desire this morning that you would give to us exactly that, an ear to hear. What your spirit would say to this part of your church as we've assembled together to glorify you and your Son, and to let your Holy Spirit minister among us. Lord, would you quicken our hearts, we pray, that we might be attentive and alert to be able to hear what you would want to say to each and every one of us personally this morning. As always, Lord, we don't want to hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but experience that demonstration of your Spirit and your power, speaking personally to each one of our hearts. So would you bless your word Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would say to us. And teach us now by your Spirit's ministry. We ask believing that you want to and will in the wonderful name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it is true that receiving eternal salvation is free. However, by the same token, it is also true that living for Jesus is costly. Receiving eternal salvation, absolutely free. But living for Jesus Christ and being submitted to his lordship, indeed, we realize, is extremely costly. Uh, Warren Wearsby said this. I thought it was a good quote. He said, salvation is open to all who will come by faith, while discipleship is for believers willing to pay a price. You know, the passage in front of us, I think, is pretty obvious from a cursory reading really conveys some very challenging things that Jesus is saying to the multitudes in that day of his ministry about the personal cost we must indeed be willing to pay 
if we do want to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you took note, three times Jesus repeatedly says for emphasis, both we find there as we begin in verse uh, 26 and then again in verse 27 and then later again, three times for emphasis, Jesus repeatedly says the words, whoever does not do these things, he cannot be my disciple. Now that's pretty strong language. It's obvious here the focal point in this particular section of Scripture is upon what it means and what it requires to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. The word disciple simply means a serious learner or a committed follower. A disciple is someone who attaches himself to a teacher in order to learn a lifestyle or to learn a trade and by observance and by spending time with their teacher or their master through that process as a close follower constantly observing what their teacher does and then putting it into practice they put themselves into the role and the position of a disciple. In fact, Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, I think gave us one of the clearest definitions of that. Jesus said this in Luke 6, 40. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. A disciple in our modern idea probably would be much like what we might call today maybe an apprentice in a place of occupation. We understand what that means if somebody is a a plumber's apprentice or an apprentice being an electrician. Basically an apprentice is someone who commits to serving together with a master craftsman or a master in that trade and they commit to serving together with that particular master craftsman in that trade so that they by being together with them might learn through observance everything that they do and then put it into practice themselves and Jesus is our master spiritually and Jesus often said when he would look at people follow me Yes, he wants us to put faith in him, but Jesus would often say, follow me and would indicate, be my disciple, become my disciple. And yet we find Jesus here now, notice, taking the time to honestly convey what it really means and what it really does include to be a disciple. And his words are really kind of a sobering reality check. They really have a way to to sting us into reality as we read what they say here to us. Now remember the background really in the prior parable that we looked at last time. Jesus there was portraying the kingdom of God or heaven like a great feast. And he gave this very clear indication that he was calling people to receive a gracious invitation to experience God's salvation, the forgiveness of their sins, and access into eternal life. And he pictured the kingdom of God or heaven as a great feast with many people being invited and how he sent out his servants to call people saying to them come for all things are now ready everything has been prepared and made ready all you need do is come and it was such a beautiful picture of how that's exactly what God has done God has made everything ready for our sins to be forgiven God has made everything ready for us to have access into heaven and eternal life there's nothing we need do but embrace and receive the invitation Jesus has sinned this life his death and poured out blood upon the cross and his resurrection back into glory has made everything ready and all we need do is put our faith in Jesus Christ and we have access into the eternal kingdom that God's intended for us however remember when the servant went out saying come all things are ready we saw that sadly there were many who made shallow excuses why they didn't want to embrace the invitation that was being extended to them. 
But yet God wants his house to be filled. God has a heart for all to be in his house, in his home, to be filled with children. So therefore it says that he sends out his servants and said, look, go forth and bring people in. And it doesn't matter what their condition is. Halt or maimed or lame or blind. Yes, they may have many issues and many conditions, but, but it doesn't matter what their condition is. Call them, bring them in. I want my house to be filled. And for those who won't respond, that doesn't mean there are others who won't continue to go out. And he said, look, go out even to the highways and the hedges. And he said, compel them to come in. Compel them, beckon them to come and to respond. As the Spirit of God does that through our world and through the lives of those of us who he uses as vessels to call people to Jesus. And the heart of the Lord is that we would all come to Jesus Christ and to embrace his invitation to have our sins forgiven, to have access into heaven and eternal life. Yet once we come initially, we must then continue to walk with Jesus faithfully. And this is where we begin to go this morning. As we see here that the doorway of salvation and coming to Jesus is open to all to have access into heaven by faith. However, once we come to Jesus by faith, it is also God's intention that we then faithfully continue to walk with Jesus Christ with him having supreme lordship over our lives. And here Jesus begins to address some of those things. He says, listen, can all come? Yes, all may come. All may come by faith alone. But he says the heart of God and the intention of God is that after we come by faith, that we would then continue to faithfully walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus therefore now turns to the crowd. And he says, look, if you want to live this way, if you want to be my disciple and you want to follow me after you come, he says there are indeed terms. Notice our scene opens again, if you'll go with me back to verse 25, by simply saying that now great multitudes went with Jesus, and we're going to see he turns and then he begins to say some pretty strong things about commitment to them. So notice, our scene opens with large crowds following Jesus as he traveled. And as we have seen, many people were attracted to Jesus and his public ministry for various different reasons, however. Many certainly were more interested in just being a part of the popular crowd and many times just the thrill and the excitement of what crowds bring. We know what that's like. There, there's something attractive about a crowd. I mean, who hasn't been out somewhere and uh, let's say you're, you're on the boardwalk or on the beach and all of a sudden you see a crowd of people rush over to something and what happens? You get up and curiosity prompts you, hey, there's a crowd. There must be something about the And we're, we're naturally drawn to crowds. Well, in the same way. Crowds were attracted to Jesus' public ministry, yet many at times were just interested in the next miracle show and had all types of different motives rather than really being personally committed to living a surrendered life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we see Jesus now, says verse 25, as the multitudes went with him, he turns back to the multitude and he says some pretty strong words about commitment here. As we've said before, Jesus was not impressed with crowds. As you look at his public ministry, he did not ever conduct his ministry in a way just to gain or to retain crowds, even though they followed him at times. Jesus cared about honoring the Father's will, and Jesus cared about speaking the truth to souls of men. 
And because of that, we find many times Jesus say some pretty staggering things. He, because he loved men and knew what was best for them, and he loved his Father and his Father's will. Because of that, Jesus always challenged men towards denying sin and denying themselves and loving God supremely instead. And how about for us, as we go into this this morning, for those of us who profess, who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, have we honestly just in some ways maybe become uh, to the place where we love being a part of the Christian social club and, and all its spiritual activities? Maybe even more than we are seriously, personally wanting to be devoted to living in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ himself. You know, it's very easy, I find, to just get caught up into all of the Christian experience. And man, this, this, we got the best thing going. <laughs> I've run with the crowds in the world. This, this is a great crowd to run with, the body of Christ. But God help me if I ever become more just comfortable and in love with just being a part of the, the Christian social club and all the spiritual, moral, wonderful activities more than I really am serious about being personally committed to the lordship and the rulership of Jesus Christ personally as my Savior and as my Lord over my life and living in a way devoted to him that would represent that. And really that's what Jesus is challenging us to consider and to evaluate personally in this passage. So Jesus turns now, verse 25, and he begins to speak and says to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus sets forth the first startling challenge to being his disciples. In fact, would you agree, it's almost kind of hard to hear what Jesus is saying there because it sounds so severe. It is so radical and sounds so severe to listen to, especially, please understand, in the mind of a Jew in that ancient culture who, unlike us, highly esteemed the value of family. And, and they put great importance upon family relationships and family dynamics. So in the same way this is startling to us, this was intensely startling to that culture who really valued and esteemed family tremendously where Jesus declares that if anyone would come after him wanting to be his disciple, that they have to be willing if they want to be his disciple, he says here, to actually hate their own family. Now in our mind we hear that and we go, wait, did he really just say what I think there? Did he really actually just say that? Is that really exactly? Well, it is. Now, granted... Granted, Jesus would never contradict himself and Jesus would never contradict the word of God because Jesus is God in the flesh and God breathed out his word by the Spirit. And because of that, both we know the Bible as well as Jesus Christ teach very clearly throughout the whole of Scripture that we are to value and to love our families supremely. Again, the Bible is very clear that we are to lovingly honor our mother and father. The Bible is very clear. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. In fact, Jesus even went so far to tell us, love your enemies. So knowing that we are to love our families, as other passages tell us, and even to love our enemies, clearly Jesus is not telling us here to have literal hatred in the way that we perceive it towards our family members. Now, some of you may have family issues. You're going, mm, I thought I had an out there. You know, 
had that one uncle that I was hoping I could just take a stand on. That's not what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is doing here, if he were to truly tell us to hate our families, would be a total contradiction to Scripture and a total contradiction to his own words, and that's not possible. God's not a man, he cannot lie. What Jesus is doing is, on many times he does, using strong language to convey an important message about devotion to him. The idea here of what Jesus is saying is, is this. In comparison, in comparison to my superior love for the Lord Jesus Christ, my love for my family should actually look like hatred when placed side by side. Let me say that again. In comparison, my superior love for Jesus as my Lord and my Savior, my superior love for Jesus in comparison to my love for family when placed side by side, when you put those two next to each other, my love for my family, it should actually look like hatred in comparison to the superior love that I have for the Lord Jesus. And this is what Jesus is trying to drive home. It speaks of how we should have supreme love for Jesus above all other loves and devotion. He should have our utmost loyalty and our complete devotion. We should be committed to Jesus above every human relationship that we possess. In fact, I think a complimentary passage of this is the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 37, where Jesus there says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. See, when it comes to our family, though we should love them deeply, we should still love them much, much less than we sincerely and truly love the Lord Jesus himself. And that is challenging for most of us. I mean, let's just be sincerely honest before the Lord. In a healthy family and in a healthy marriage, there are deep bonds of love that we possess upon one, between one another. And that's God's intention. In a healthy family life between parents and children and, and children and parents and between husbands and wives, uh, that love it runs tremendously deep. And there are strong bonds of love and strong devotion that we share towards one another in a very healthy way. However, that love naturally that's very strong can be so strong, so much so that at times, at times it can actually run emotional interference in our spiritual devotion and loyalty and love towards the Lord Jesus Christ whereby the love that we have so strongly and naturally and properly among one another, even in our closest family relationships, that love, at times, if not careful in our lives, can be the thing that in an emotional way, emotional interference, it runs an interference and causes distractions and hindrances, even in the superior love that we should have for the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby sometimes we can begin to put pleasing family before actually pleasing the Lord. And we can find ourselves in a spot where we have to decide. Am I going to choose to please the Lord? Or am I going to choose to do what pleases my family? And sometimes what pleases the Lord, it may not please our family. It may not be the thing that's their preference or the thing that they respond to joyously. And we may find ourselves in that spot where we have to decide. And at times, if that emotional interference of love for our family is stronger than what it should be for our love for Jesus in a superior love, we can begin, out of that love for our family, to begin to do what pleases our family rather than what pleases the Lord. 
We can be guilty at times of beginning to give more devotion and dedication to family rather than Jesus. You know, even some Christian materials and things that exist, I, I understand the great emphasis on family, family, family. I, I understand that. For me, it is Jesus first, it is my family second, and everything else comes after that. I understand that. But we have to be careful too. Sometimes we can love our own children more than we love Jesus by the way that we relate and interact to them and the investment and time and devotion that we bring. We can love our spouse or, or love other relationships that we have in such a way where we look at our top priority and where we invest and how we make choices and what we do, and it's obvious that, that we've actually superseded the importance of our family even above our love and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And in some situations, family members at times don't even maybe support us being committed to Jesus. I mean, think what it's like for folks in some foreign countries where you, you can be put out of a family if you choose to follow Jesus Christ. You can be put out of the society and out of the culture. And in our lives too, even here as we walk with Jesus Christ in our country, you, know, you may be, you get born again and you're the first one to get saved in your family and maybe everybody's not real thrilled about this Jesus thing all of a sudden now. In fact, some of you at times have experienced before where maybe even people don't not only not like, but, but they're not willing to even want to support your desire to live committed to Jesus Christ or maybe to the level that you want to serve him and they become directly opposed and even start to strongly resist your relationship with Jesus. In fact, sometimes family members will even force other families to choose. Look, you need to choose. Either this Jesus thing or choose... You're gonna, and, and that's a tough spot to be in. And Jesus knew on occasion that these situations would arise, so he gives this challenge for those of us who desire to be his disciples, saying, look, if anyone comes to me and he's, he's not willing to hate his father or mother, wife or children, brothers or sisters... Jesus says, you, and you can't be my disciple. You're not going to be able to live in that serious, committed way that I intend for you to. In order to be Jesus' disciple, he wants my supreme devotion to be to him before every other in my life. And what a great way to take inventory this morning, to honestly consider the way that I'm living currently, and to evaluate and to ask myself or ask yourself the way that you're currently living, sincerely. Does it reflect supreme desire and supreme devotion and superior love to Jesus above every other personal relationship in your life. Jesus here challenges us regarding that. Notice Jesus also in verse 26 addresses another love that can interfere with our love for him and that is self-love. You notice that at the end of verse 26 he, he also says not only that we must hate family but then he says yes and his own life also, if he doesn't hate his own life also, Jesus says he cannot be my disciple. We all have tremendous love for ourselves. We won't admit it, but we all honestly recognize it. And because of our love for ourselves, naturally, we love our own lives. That's our life. It's our own little life, and we love our life. And, and whether we admit it or recognize it, the result is evident because of the fact that our top priority, usually in, in all of our experience, is our top priority revolves around pursuing our own self-interests. That's our natural inclination, to pursue those things, to do what we want, when we want, to go where we want, and to do things how we want. And that's what motivates us in our natural sinful tendencies and our natural humanity. We love ourselves, and therefore, we love our own life. 
and we want to do what we want, when we want, and go where we want, and have things the way that we want them to be. And we don't want anyone, do we? We don't want anyone to come in and try and tell us to do with our life. Because our, our mental capacity says, whoa, 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 this is my life. And nobody's going to tell me what to do with my life. This is my life. Nobody's going to come in and tell me what to do with my life. You know, if you ever watch little children, that's totally evident. They don't articulate it. They just throw a temper tantrum, screaming and hollering all over when you say, now we need to leave the store now, Johnny. We need to, and, and they just start freaking out. Why? Because you're trying to tell them what they're going to do with their life. And, and we don't like when somebody invades and says, hey, I'm going to tell you what to do with your life. It's my life. You're not going to tell me what to do with my life. This is my life. And here Jesus enters into our world recognizing we have these goals and plans and we want to seek the course we want to pursue and we work towards having the way things we want them to be. It's our natural tendency. We want to have what we enjoy. We want to, we want to have our life remain comfortable. We want to have our life remain undisturbed and unchallenged. And, and we have a strong drive, don't we? We have a strong drive to not only seek to have things in our life the way we want them to be, but more than that, to then hold on tightly to our own little life so that nothing or no one interrupts our life the way we have it, the way that we like it. And we hold tightly to our own little life and there's a self-preservation of our own life agenda that drives us. And Jesus comes in and says, if you want to be my disciple, Tony, if you want to be my disciple, not only may every other relationship not be above me, but on top of that, you need to be willing to hate your own life. Your life that you think belongs to you. You need to be willing to hate your own life also. We must love Jesus so superior that we'd be willing to deny our love of self and to deny even that strong love of our own life. Reason being, of course, so that we love Jesus enough, listen, to embrace the life that he has intended for us. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away, all things become new. And, and the Bible says we were bought with a price. We are not our own. As a Christian, I've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, and therefore my life truly belongs to him. And he is calling us to love him supremely in a way where I would love Jesus more than my own life. And I would love Jesus more than my own desires and agendas and dreams that I have for my own life in such a way that I would be able to love him that supremely so that I can then find and experience the life that Jesus has for me. Remember Jesus said back in uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, he said this, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Hey, can I ask a searching question this morning? Is your love for Jesus leading you to seek to find the life that Jesus has for you? I look at the example of Paul the Apostle, his supreme love for Jesus, and Paul said in Acts 20, I don't count my life dear to myself. In other words, he said, I don't count my life important to myself. Here's what he went on to say. So that I may finish my race and ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Paul says, I can't esteem my life valuable or love my own life because if I did, it would hinder me from having had received 
the ministry and the life that the Lord Jesus intended for me. And Paul's devotion to Jesus led him to a life at times that had circumstances, I'm certain, that were not according to Paul's preference as just a human being. There were times that Paul experienced things in his life that involved challenge and struggle and being stretched and no doubt where he had to face challenges he wouldn't have had to. Even multiple imprisonments. Why? Because Paul embraced the life Jesus had for him and he received that life and was pursuing that life. In fact, in Philippians 1, Paul declares this. He says, My hope is that, in Christ, is that Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death. And then Paul went on to say that classic statement, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says to live for me, to live is Christ. This morning, what is it for you to live? To live is what? To live is your career? To live is popularity in school with your friends? To, to live is to pursue this or to have that? Or, or is to live for you Christ? To live for Christ and to find the life that Jesus has for you. To be willing to love your life less so that you can love the life that Jesus has for you more and discover it and live it out. And listen, I can tell you, when we do that, I guarantee we won't have regrets. Jesus is a good shepherd. And it may stretch us and challenge us, but Jesus said, I may have come that you may have life, and that more abundantly. It's an abundant life to live for Jesus. It's an exciting life to live for Jesus. And how Jesus wants us to have that as our top priority. How much this morning do you really love holding on to your own life? How much this morning do you find yourself, especially in comparison to your love for Jesus and being devoted to him? Jesus is simply demanding that no one or nothing comes in between us and him. Look at verse 27. He goes on and says, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, again, cannot be my disciple. So again, we see Jesus with another strong image as a requirement of being a disciple. He says, a person also must be willing to bear his cross and come after me. Now remember, Roman crucifixion was not only something that involved intense suffering and pain, but it also really was a shameful and disgraceful way to be put to death. And Jesus picks up on this image in the mind of a Jew that they could fully relate to of bearing the cross. It described how the sentenced criminal would carry the horizontal beam of the crucifixion and they would walk with it on their shoulders being led by the Roman soldiers out to their place of execution where they would then be attached to the vertical beam and they would be crucified publicly as a very clear display to the society around them of the power and the authority of Rome. And Rome would make people, many a times, carry their cross through the city and out to the execution site to convey a message, and that was this, is that the Roman Empire's authority should not be resisted. And it would not be resisted, and therefore that person was under submission to Rome's heel and to Rome's authority, and they were now submitted to the throne of Rome displaying that as they walked out. So as you carried your cross, you were communicating, whether you liked it or not, you were communicating that you were fully submitted to the Roman Empire's authority over you. You had no rights, and you were being led by that empire and that throne, even to the very place of your own death. And the Romans would do this in such a way to indicate, very clearly, you were indicating as you carried the cross and bore the cross, you were indicating your own death, 
And you were indicating very clearly that you were under submission to the Roman Empire's authority and rulership. Now Jesus uses this as a strong spiritual analogy regarding what he demands for being his disciples. He likens it in a metaphoric way, reminding us that to be the disciple of Jesus, I must be willing to choose to die to myself in greater ways. If I want to be a disciple of Jesus, I have to be willing to not live in resistance and rebellion to heaven's throne and to the empire and the kingdom of God. That I need to choose to live a life instead that's submitted to the throne of heaven and submitted to the authority of the one who sits on that throne, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to live out each day yielded and committed to his lordship over my life where I forsake my rights and allow myself to be led completely under his control and be submitted to his throne, whatever that requires in my life. Luke said back in chapter 9, verse 23, he recorded for us these words of Jesus, Luke 9, 23. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. See, would you agree it is truly, it is truly a daily decision to get up in the morning every day and to drag that carcass of a body back out of the bed again and to choose again to, to in my own heart, bow the knee to Jesus. This day belongs to you, Lord, whatever you would have rule over me, help me to walk in your spirit. I pray it would not be I who live, but Christ lives in me. And Lord, please help me to die to myself. Lord, help me today to be submitted, not to resist your throne and the, 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 the edicts and the things that you're requesting from your throne, but to be submitted to your throne, not to be resistant, but to let you be Lord of me. See, bearing the cross, please understand, when Jesus uses the term bearing the cross, bearing our cross does not mean just dealing with some personal difficulty. You know, I, we, I hear people say things like that on occasion. You know, maybe they have a tough marriage and say, well, you know, it's just my cross to bear. Well, that's not going to solve your marriage problems. Let me help you. <laughs> well, you know, I have this family member or I have this tough situation and job. Well, that's just my cross to bear. Well, that's not what it means at all. When Jesus says to bear our cross, he's talking about death to ourself and submission to the throne of heaven and just like Jesus himself embracing the pattern that Jesus said for, set for us as our example and emulating how he forsook his rights and the glorious position he had in heaven and came to this earth and submitted to the Father's will out of obedience and honor for him and how Jesus gave himself totally for us. He just asks us now responsibly to give ourselves back totally to him. And that's why we find Jesus saying here in a strong way, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he says, cannot be my disciple. Verse 28, he says, For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. And then they start to say, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So Jesus uses a building project as an illustration of the importance of considering in advance and all along the way that what would be required not only to start, but to finish something. And you see that this is the concept he's drawing here. To begin building something and not finish, not only would be poor stewardship, but also it would invoke mockery. It would invoke, invoke insults and people who would mock what you were doing. The point here Jesus is talking about is counting the cost to make sure you can finish. He says, look, 
Consider if you build a tower to, to be there to overlook your fields or a tower there on the wall to overlook the city. When somebody begins to build a tower, Jesus says, they would never do that haphazardly without really considering, hey, what's going to be demanded of me? What's going to be required of me to make sure that I can finish this process? Because the whole goal was to finish. And if we fail to finish, then we realize what's going to happen is those watching are going to start mocking. And much of the Christian life, is it not, much of the Christian life is like a building process. At our salvation, Jesus is the foundation. And then as we continue to live out our relationship with Jesus, we start to build a new life, which the Bible likens to a temple for the Lord. It tells us in Jude chapter 20, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Jesus himself said very clearly and explicitly uh, you know, th that we are to build our lives or our house upon a rock. And he said, to do that is basically to be someone who hears my sayings and puts them into practice. That part of our Christian life is like a building process. And to follow Jesus necessitates following his blueprints for how we build, which is the word of God. Which is looking to the word of God for instruction and direction. Hey, how do I do marriage? How do I do parenting? How am I to live as a godly Christian student? How am I to be responsive towards my cravings and desires for what's wrong? And how do I honor the Lord? How do I love and serve the Lord? And the Word of God is our blueprint. And as we're following the blueprint, you know what happens. Just as we're on a construct, at times we make mistakes. We, and, and, and we do things a little incorrect. But we have to realize, hey, it's okay. Even when we make mistakes and, and we don't follow the blueprint accurately and now we got something that we need to fix, we can't just quit and walk off. We need to say, hey, this is wrong. I need to correct this. I need to go back to the blueprint and see how to fix this. And I need to stay at it and be faithful. And it requires overcoming challenges and resolving errors. And not just giving up and walking off. And building a godly life involves a little bit of determination. It involves investing our time and our energy. And there is a cost to pay, but it's nothing in comparison to the investment that Jesus made. There's no comparison at all. I want to encourage you this morning, take serious and be committed to building your spiritual life. And I tell you... It won't just happen automatically without your involvement. You, know, you can lay a foundation. If nobody shows up and, and begins to do the building process, nothing's ever going to be built. In the same way with your salvation and meeting Jesus, Jesus is the foundation. But there's building yourself up on your most holy faith, and it won't happen automatically. And the goal is not just to get saved. The goal is to live and serve Jesus until the day he draws you out of this world to be in his presence. That's just the starting gun the moment you get saved. You gotta, we got to keep running the race. We need to keep moving forward. And, and the Lord wants us not just to start, but to finish well. And we need to remember that as we live for Jesus, we are, whether we realize it or not, we are building a Christian testimony. And people are watching us. And if at times we don't calculate the cost and remain committed, what happens is sometimes then a Christian walks away. Or they abandon the Lord and the work of the Lord in their life. And what naturally happens? People who are watching and looking on begin to mock and ridicule and say things like, See, they started. But I knew this thing wouldn't last with them. I, I knew they wouldn't finish. I, I knew they wouldn't continue with what they were doing. And people begin to mock and ridicule. And here's the thing we have to remember. It's not just our name and testimony that's going to get disgraced in the process. It's Jesus' name. It's Jesus' testimony that we carry around with us. I find, though, if we're willing to remain committed to Jesus, the wonderful thing is he will supply the grace. 
He'll supply the grace to finish and to finish well. Because the Bible tells us that we can be confident that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 31, he then says, Or what king going to war, he says, against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if recognizing he can't win, he says, he will still, when the other soldiers are a great way off, send and for a delegation and ask for conditions of peace. Again, Jesus gives another illustration with an analogy of a battle and two kings at war. And kings understood what it demanded and required to be successful in battles and to obtain victory. They knew it involved things. So if they knew they were outnumbered and outmatched, they would wisely take into consideration what was required. They knew it required some things to win a battle and to be successful in war. So because of that, before they were defeated and suffered loss, they would wisely respond and humbly admit their situation to reconcile things first. And again, can I say the Christian life in the Word of God is portrayed many times as a continuation of what? Many spiritual battles. Jesus said there's a ruler of this age. Paul said there's a prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. And he is at war against the kingdom of God. And there is spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6 and 2 Corinthians 2 tell us that we as Christians, spiritually, we've been drafted into, this Lord's, into the Lord's army. And we now be, enter into the spiritual conflict and we're submitted to the throne of King Jesus. But we need to always remember there is a real enemy in a kingdom of darkness with spiritual forces who will assault us and will launch attacks against us. And the Lord desires for us as his soldiers in his army to be willing to put on the armor of God and stand at times when need be to hold our post for Jesus. To not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. And to be willing to, at times, dig in our heels and faithfully endure in our Christian life because we realize, hey, there's something bigger than me. It's the honor of Jesus. And it's the lives of those that we need to liberate and help and come to their aid and rescue. You know, Paul told Timothy, challenging him, 2 Timothy 2.3, he said, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Just like a soldier has to endure certain things, and they, they can't just give up and walk off. And that's, think of what soldiers are willing to commit to. Why? Because they realize there's something bigger than themselves that they're living and serving for. And we need to have that perspective spiritually. Because we are going to experience conflict and assaults and challenges and spiritual warfare. And we need to be willing to endure struggles and not just surrender. Not just bury our head in the foxhole and say, that's it, I give up. But to be willing to put on the armor of God and to let Jesus lead us and to stand in the evil day and not give in to temptation. And not let the enemy devastate and destroy, but instead to follow Jesus as our leader and continue to serve him realizing what we've been called to. Look what Jesus says, verse 33. He says, likewise, the idea here is the, the, the comparison now or the conclusion. Likewise, he says, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has. That's not really what that says, is it? <laughs> whoever does not forsake all that he has, again, he says a third time, cannot be my disciple. So Jesus here makes a conclusion regarding demands of discipleship and he's telling us there must not be anything or anyone that if need be, we would not be willing to give up 
for Jesus Christ if he were to ask us to. I think it's just a reference back to all that he's been saying. In other words, to forsake all he's saying to us, look, if you're not willing to forsake family, if you're not willing to give up your closest human relationships in some way, if it means that, then you're not, you're not able to be my disciple. If you're not willing to forsake your love for yourself and your love for your own little life to follow me as my disciple, then you can't be my disciple. If you're not willing to forsake being self-ruled and submit to my lordship, then you're not going to be able to be my disciple. If you're not willing to continue to build and to stay faithful and not just give up and walk off and leave things without following through and finishing until the day you step through the veil in eternity, you're not going to be able to be my disciple. If you're not willing to forsake the temptation and the pressures to turn away from the Lord and to give in to sin and to let the enemy rule and to obtain victory, and he says you're not not willing to forsake that and those temptations and pressures and instead to endure with the weapons of the warfare that God supplies and remain committed as my soldier, then Jesus says, you're not going to be my disciple. And Jesus here says some staggering and strong things to cause us to consider our commitment to him. Look how he concludes in verse 34 and 35. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. And he who has ears to hear, Jesus says, let him hear. So Jesus ends this challenging section by illustrating with what? Something else now, the purpose of salt. He says salt is good, and salt did have good purposes in that day. It was an antiseptic. It was used at times to heal wounds, to protect from bacteria. Salt was a preservative. They would rub it into meats and fishes when they had that to kill bacterial growth, to protect it from rotting. Salt, obviously, according to the words of Jesus, like it is today, was a seasoning agent for food to add flavor. It even, some say, was used to be involved mixed in fertilizer for the fields. And because salt was valuable, it was even given as a part of the soldier's pay in that day. They would give them a solarium, which was a small portion of salt, to use for some of those good purposes as a soldier. In fact, salarium, that's where the word salary comes from. Or the statement where we say sometimes, hey, that guy's not worth his salt. That's where the idea comes from. And here Jesus says, yet if salt, which has a good purpose, if it becomes defiled or it loses its flavor, if that happens, Jesus says, it's lost the good purpose that it was originally intended for. And because of that, once it lost its purpose, it would kind of just be cast aside and trampled under the foot of men because it had lost its purpose. And then Jesus says what? Verse 35, he says, He who has ears, let him hear. He's saying, pay attention, there's a lesson here. There's a lesson in this. Matthew 5, Jesus said that believers, followers of Jesus, are what? The salt of the earth. That our presence on this planet, after we are saved, which is the reason, we're not just... You know, we didn't get saved and just disappear from the planet. That would have been a great system if I had my preference. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine the insurance policy God must have out of my life to just keep me stable on this earth. I know, I live with me every day. That would have been a great plan. Saved, <laughs> saved, <laughs> just get us out of here. But the Lord's left us here for a purpose to be light in the world, but also we are the salt of the earth. Our presence has a valuable and a good purpose to fulfill. Like salt, as a Christian who knows Jesus and can point people to Jesus and knows the word of God, listen, just like salt, 
you may be the only person that can bring true healing into someone else's life. As, as a Christian, as the salt of this earth, we are the only thing that are the preserving influence of morality in our culture, which is degrading that which is moral and right in a decaying world. We as Christians, by our presence among unbelievers, should be living in a way where our lives add flavor and appeal to making people want to taste and see that the Lord is good and to create spiritual thirst in people to want to come to Jesus. And if we're not living right as Jesus' disciples, we fail, he says, to fulfill that good purpose we're intended. And we can have a saved soul, yes, saved soul, but a wasted life. And Jesus says, no, my, my intention is so much higher for that. I want you to have a saved soul and an effective life to affect your culture, to influence and to help those around you. You know, we look at these things, and I looked at them this week way before we're looking at them together this morning, and there's some challenging things. Jesus says some staggering things here, quite challenging the demands that Jesus puts upon our life for discipleship, that he would say things like, if you're not willing to hate your family or to hate your own life, if you're not willing to take up your cross if you're not willing to forsake all, that's strong. Yet for some of us, though we know we're not there, for some of us, there is still yearning within us a desire to want to live more like that. And the question becomes this, Lord, how do I come to a place of having supreme love for you and such superior devotion to Jesus? Because, Lord, I want to get there. I want to experience more of that. I want that for my life. Well, I can tell you this. It's not by making resolves and personal human determination. I think the greater pathway instead is to receive and discover afresh the love of Jesus Christ and watch how the power of the love of Jesus motivates you. What did Paul say, who lived very devoted to Jesus? Paul said these words, for the love of Christ compels me. Paul said, that's what's motivating me. You know, this morning, I encourage you, if you're a Christian, as we conclude this time, to pray, Lord, would you just afresh reveal your love to me in such a way that the power of your love for me would just motivate me. Love's a powerful motivator, we know that. Lord, just reveal your love afresh. Listen, when I first got saved, nobody had to tell me how to radically turn away from sin and start living for Jesus. It just happened for one reason. Because I was so overwhelmed by the love of Jesus for me, it was the natural inclination and response of receiving and understanding that love. Ask the Lord to reveal his love afresh. And if you're here this morning and you've never made a commitment to Jesus as Savior and Lord, I pray for you that you would more clearly see than ever before the love of Jesus Christ for you and what he's did for you. In that Jesus came to this earth and lived the sinless life that none of us can who all fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus lived that sinless life and then stepped into your place sacrificially and took the punishment for our sin upon himself and poured out his blood as the atoning payment to forgive our sins and then rose from the dead so that he could be a living Savior to save us from the penalty of our sin and the power of our sin and to give us access into eternal life if we're willing to do nothing more than come to him and bow our knee to him in submission and say, Jesus, thank you for that. I love you. Would you save me, forgive me? And watch 
how the power of Jesus' love will change your life as well. Shall we bow our heads and pray? And we'll ask for musicians to come forward. Father, thank you for your word and how it conveys things personally to our hearts. And Lord, we ask that your spirit this morning as we sing this concluding song would even just afresh convey to us the depths of the love of God, that we could behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. And that, Lord, seeing and discovering your love again, we would begin to live more radically devoted to you just in response. And I pray, Father, for any who don't know you, have never made that commitment to Jesus, that you might open their eyes and bring them to submission this very morning.